Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us the, this morning. As Dr. Steve uh, just mentioned, we are uh, taking a break from Romans. We've been in Romans uh, all year. We are uh, in chapter 11. We're taking a two-week break uh, in order for us to uh, consider Christmas. And so this morning, we're in everyone's favorite Christmas text, Genesis 3, 14 through 15. If you are like me, then I'm sure uh, as you're doing all of your Christmas stuff, you're sitting around the fire and you're drinking cocoa and you're eating cookies with your kids and, uh, uh, and maybe you're decorating your tree or whatever it might be and you have a Christmas movie going in the background. Uh, so you have It's a Wonderful Life or Elf or Home Alone or Die Hard or something like that going in the background and, uh, and then your mind and your conversation begins to kind of drift to all of those things that we associate with uh, with Christmas. So you think of ornaments, and you think of family gatherings, and you think of presents, and, uh, and then obviously you think of talking serpents. That's what everybody thinks about uh, at, uh, at Christmas. Now, you may not know this about me. You may know this about me, but I love snakes. Uh, when I say that, don't think I mean that I have a pet snake. That is not the case. Don't uh, think that that means that I want to hold your pet snake or that I want to drape it around my neck like a uh, scarf or something like that. I'm not Steve Irwin. This is not a, a serpent-handling church. Uh, but when I say that I love snakes, I mean I love killing snakes. It's like a hobby for me. And uh, so some people like to collect baseball cards. Some people like to build uh, model airplanes or whatever it might be. I like to kill snakes. That's kind of what I do with my, uh, with my free time. And, uh, and so uh, I'm kind of the, if you've ever seen the Jason Bourne, uh, movies, and he just turns anything into a weapon. So a phone book or, uh, or a washcloth or a fountain pen or something like that. I kind of consider myself the Jason Bourne of snake assassins. And uh, so I started thinking this past week of all the different instruments, all the different tools or weapons that I have used uh, to kill snakes in the past. And I thought, I have used uh, a baseball bat, I've used a BB gun, I've used a handgun, I've used a shotgun, I've used a rifle, I've used a bicycle. I've used an ATV, uh, I've used a rock, I've used a shovel, I've used a gardening hoe, and on and on we could probably go with all these. In fact, my grandfather once blew up a snake because uh, he, he poured uh, gasoline down this, uh, this hole and, uh, and then uh, all, he lit it. And so all of the gas was trapped in there and it just blew up. I don't know that the snake survived that. Uh, we never saw a body. Uh, but anyway, I love to kill snakes. And, uh, and so the, I, I tell you that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, in case you guys fire me and this pastoral thing doesn't work out, I'm probably going to start like a snake removal business. And so this is some free advertisement for you. Uh, if you ever have a snake problem at your house, then I'm the man. Uh, and uh, if you want someone to gently rescue it or relocate it or something, call animal control. I have no interest in that. But if you want someone to bring like a weapon and wrath, that is me. But the second reason that I tell you that is, uh, is because that's what our passage is about. It is about the death of a serpent. And, uh, and so scholars have called this particular passage the proto-evangelium. Proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first and evangelium, the same word as like evangelism and evangel. Uh, it means gospel. It means good news. This is the first hint, the first glimmer that we get in Scripture that there is going to be this uh, hope. So even as we read this curse this morning, there is this cure that is embedded within it. That is the death of the serpent. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive into the text. 
First, I want to ask you just to, uh, to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, a mind and a heart that is attentive and, and affected by His Word this morning. And then would you pray that for those around you as well, friends, or straight, strangers, family, whatever it might be, that the Lord would give us collectively as a, as a body uh, a heart and a mind that would treasure His Word. And then would you pray for me, for boldness, faithfulness. So Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity that we have to consider Your Word together. And it's a strange text to consider uh, at Christmas, but it is a text that deals with uh, the eventual coming of Your Son to crush the head of the serpent. And so, although we don't think of it as a Christmas text, perhaps we should. So I pray that You would help us uh, this morning to, uh, to see uh, Your goodness, to see the hope of the Gospel embedded here. We pray these things because You're good and You do good. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin by uh, setting up the story. This is a true story, by the way. It's not just some ancient Near Eastern myth that you might have heard about in school, like the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish or something like that. We talked a little bit about uh, the historicity of the events in Genesis in our theological equipping class. You can go online and you can go back and, and listen to what we said uh, about creation or come and chat with us if you have questions uh, about that. But let's dive into the story. So Genesis 3 obviously occurs after Genesis 1 and 2. That's how numbers work. And, uh, and so Genesis 1 and 2 kind of concern the creation of the world. God creates the world. He creates the world by His Word, and He calls it good. He says that everything uh, is good. He forms man from the dust of the earth. He f- fashions woman from, uh, from man, and then He commands them to go and to bear fruit and to multiply and to subdue the earth. Uh, in essence, he tells them to bear his image, to exercise dominion over all of, uh, of creation. And God tells them that they may eat of all of these trees uh, in the garden. All of these trees in the garden. There are so many of these trees that they can, uh, can eat from. But he says that they must not eat from this one tree in particular. Now, if you're reading this in the, uh, the original Hebrew, uh, what actually happens there is there's this emphasis Uh, on the permission that God gives. Uh, In in essence, the the Hebrew is going to suggest there is this abundance of opportunity for them to eat of all of these trees, and yet mankind is is mesmerized by this one single solitary restriction, this one prohibition, this one limitation, this one tree that uh, that is off limits. And, uh, and so that one particular limitation mesmerizes the man and, uh, and the woman. And then we have this serpent that enters the scene at the beginning of, uh, of Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis doesn't actually tell us the identity of the serpent uh, within uh, Genesis itself, but the answer to that question becomes progressively clear as we read uh, the rest of the Bible. In fact, if we were to turn to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we would read this in Revelation 12. I think we'll put it up on the screen. And the great dragon was thrown down. Listen to this phrase. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see that the ancient serpent in the garden is the devil. That's from a Greek word that means a slanderer. And he's also known as Satan. That's from a Hebrew word, shatan, uh, which, uh, which means adversary or accuser. And so that's who this, uh, this serpent is. And what does the serpent do? 
The serpent comes on the scene, and all the serpent does is he just asks a question. That's it. This one short, seemingly innocuous question that the serpent is going to ask. But that question is the soil for the seed of sin because all sin is ultimately going to consist of a questioning of two things. One is the character of God, and the second is the Word of God. And that's exactly what the serpent is going to do. To do, And I said that all sin consists of that because we see that uh, even in uh, our own day today. Perhaps you've heard or perhaps you've even thought some of the following things, that God can't be loving if hell exists. God can't be loving if hell exists. So we either conclude that hell doesn't exist, in other words, we question the Word of God, or we say God then can't be good. So we question the character of God of God. Or maybe you've heard God isn't good if homosexuality is wrong. So either homosexuality must be correct, we question God's word, or God must not really be good and loving, so we question his character. Or that God isn't gracious if he demands that I stay in this hard marriage, or God isn't good if he demands or if he gives men and women different roles and responsibilities in the home. Uh, and in the church, and on and on and on we could go with anything that you might find offensive, anything that you might not like in Scripture ultimately comes down to this, that you're going to question the character and the Word of God. So we decide to distort God's character or dilute uh, His Word because we can't reconcile them in our hearts. And that's the enemy, that's the tactic of the enemy uh, even today. Perhaps even in this sermon in the next 35, 40 minutes together, you will find yourself questioning the character of God or questioning the, uh, the Word of God. And my hope for you this morning is as you do so, my first hope would be that wouldn't be the case, but my second hope is if that is going to be the case, that you would be able to identify that distinct hiss, the kind of the inflection of, uh, of sin. And we hear it even in this text that Satan asks this little question and as a result of this little question that all of creation is going to unravel. You've heard, probably heard before, maybe in school or something, that there's no bad questions. That's absolutely absurd. There are tons of bad questions. For instance, the time that I asked myself, I wonder what would happen to this car if while going down the highway I put it into reverse. That's a bad question. All right? Whenever, a, uh, whenever someone asks, do I look fat in this? That's a bad question. Right? There's all kinds of bad questions that we could possibly ask, and that, what we see here, is a bad question. Look at how the woman is going to respond when Satan comes and questions. Did God really say this? The woman responds. The woman saw that the, the, uh, that the tree was good for food, Genesis 3.6, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she decides that she will be the one to decide what is and isn't good. No longer is the Word of God the ultimate authority, but all of a sudden her feelings, her thoughts, her heart becomes the arbiter, the standard, the authority, what actually decides what is and is not true. We see that all the time. To thine own self be true. It's kind of the idea. Listen to your heart. Follow your feelings. All of that sort of jazz. That's the essence of sin that we see creeping into the garden here with this creeping thing that is the serpent. That we question the character and word of God and enthrone our own minds and our own hearts 
and our own feelings as the standards of truth, to ask not what Scripture says, but instead what we feel about what Scripture says, as if God's Word is somehow subjective and we are the authority. So this woman, later named Eve, she finds the Word of God displeasing, but she finds disobedience delightful. She sees that this tree, the fruit of this tree, looks good to eat. And so although God had said it is bad, she eats of it. She finds sin sweet and satisfying, at least in the short term. And so she eats, and then she gives some to her husband, and he is with her, and he eats as well. Theologians call this the entrance of sin into the world. They call this the fall. Now, what's interesting is I spent a lot of time this week trying to find where does that term originate? Where is it that uh, we first see this phrase, the fall, for Genesis chapter 3? And I couldn't find a single credible source. I found a ton of sources by like your crazy uncle or whatever it might be, but I didn't find a single credible source. If you find uh, a credible, reliable source for where this uh, sort of idea of this being called the fall crept in, email me. And you will win a, uh, any item of your choice from our lost and found. That's my uh, gift to you. So what's the result of this fall? The entrance of sin into the world, the result of this fall, there's this immediate spiritual death that mankind experiences. And the clock begins ticking on physical death. Again, this is another place where we might be tempted to question the character and the Word of God. We might think to ourselves, does this one little act really deserve, merit, a lifetime of separation from God? And even beyond a lifetime, eternal death? And the answer to that question is yes. That this one-time event against an infinite God is worthy of infinite punishment. So man feels this overwhelming gravity of shame and condemnation, and he hides behind some bushes as if to trick this omniscient, this omnipresent creator who comes and he questions the man who blames the woman, who blames the serpent. So then the Lord God is going to speak and we'll pick up our text there. Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. Now, we won't read the entire narrative uh, today. The entire curse goes on. Not only uh, does God speak to the serpent, but He speaks to uh, the woman and to the man as well. What's really interesting, as God is going to engage and question each of the, member of this, uh, each of the members of this little cosmic conspiracy... Uh, against him, as he engages and addresses each of them, he does so in a very particular order. And that is kind of the in inversion, the reversal, the upending of, uh, of creation order. That God had originally created man in particular and given him headship. That is sacrificial, this loving authority that he is to exercise over his wife. And then together they are to exercise dominion, to, to exercise loving, gracious humble authority over the rest of creation. But what you see is an upending of that. That the serpent goes to the woman and the woman is going to betray her husband. And you see this upending of that. And so God addresses them in the same order of this uh, conspiracy. And so He speaks to the serpent first. And in speaking, He declares a curse. What is a curse? A curse is an invitation or an invocation of divine judgment. 
We think of it as the opposite of a blessing. What's a blessing? A blessing is when you speak life and joy and hope over someone, and a curse is the exact opposite, where you are, instead of speaking life over them, you're speaking death over them. Instead of of speaking hope and joy over them, you're speaking condemnation and judgment uh, over them. And so interestingly, we see here that the serpent is going to be cursed. Well, also, if we were to continue on with the narrative, we would see that creation itself, that the ground is going to be cursed. But what's interesting is that the word curse is actually not applied to the man and the woman, that the curse on men and women is more implicit rather than explicit in the text. The, the curse that we read about in the text is going to be more pain related to their individual roles. And I think part of the reason is because in some sense, the curse has actually already begun even before the Lord God begins to speak to the man and the woman because the moment that they sin, they experience the full fullness of that curse, which is eternal death, separation from God. Man was already spiritually cursed in the sense that man was already spiritually dead. That's the real curse. And so when, man, uh, when God is going to address men and women later on, we're going to see the mere kind of fringes of the consequences of this curse, that there's going to be frustration and fatigue and agony that are going to attach to men's labor and work and women's labor in, uh, in childbearing. And so in this curse that man is going to experience, we're going to see also what, what has historically been known as the fourfold division of the fall. We talked about this quite a bit whenever we walked through uh, the book of Ephesians a couple of years ago, so you can go back and listen to that audio if you want a refresher. But just by way of summary, as a result of sin, we see these sort of four different dimensions to the division that is going to be uh, experienced by mankind, these four distinct separations that plague humanity Uh, even to this day. First and foremost, the one that we're most familiar with, if you grew up in church, you think about this, when you think about the fall, the first and foremost thing that you think about is man's uh, separation from God. Uh, We think about that. That's one of the divisions of the fall. That's the first division that man experiences this fracture, this conflict, this division, this separation, this enmity with God. And so thus we see that mankind is plagued with judgment and condemnation and divine wrath and eternal death. But in addition to that first division of the fall, we also see a second division, that is division between man and wife. We've seen that already in some sense as, uh, as Adam is going to blame his wife, but we'll see it even more if we were to continue on verse 16, which is going to speak of this, uh, this ongoing clash that's going to be experienced between the desires of the woman and the desires uh, of the man that they're going to clash against each other. So thus, even today, we see marital tension, we see adultery, we see other forms of sexual morality or divorce or whatever uh, it might be. That's the second division. The third division is between man and his fellow man. Within one chapter of this curse, there will be murder. Thus, today, there's deception, there is... uh, uh, There's robbery, there's assault, there's lawsuits, there's homicide, there's genocide, there's injustice, there's oppression, there's racism, and on and on we could go. And then the last division is between man and creation as a whole. According to the text, that work is going to become laborious. Now work itself is not a result of the fall. Work itself is not a result of the curse. Work is something that God has uh, already inaugurated and initiated for our good and for our flourishing. Work is a very good thing. 
So work doesn't come about as a result of the fall, but what happens is that work becomes frustrating, that thorns and thistles are going to spring up instead of uh, fruitful uh, things. And, uh, and so we see the result of sin is that it becomes tedious, it becomes hard, it becomes difficult. There is this separation, this division that happens between mankind and, uh, and uh, creation, which man was supposed to uh, rule over benevolently. And so today we see that in famines and floods and plagues and viruses and cancer and poverty and unemployment and on and on uh, we could go. But our text today is not about all of these different divisions of the fall. In particular, our text is about this curse upon the serpent. So we're not going to spend as much time on all of those other aspects because it's Christmas. Who wants to talk about famines and plagues? We want to talk about curses and, uh, and snakes and other Christmas stuff like that. So God is going to begin in verse 14 by telling the serpent that as a result of this activity that he is cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Now, if you're paying really close attention to the book of Genesis, in particular Genesis chapter 3, you might notice that this parallels with verse 1 of Genesis 3, which is where we first encounter the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, notice there, whereas the serpent was more crafty, that's the language of Genesis 1, than any other beast. When we get to Genesis 3.14, it says that he is now more cursed than any other beast. In fact, in Hebrew, that parallel, that uh, analogy in a sense, that wordplay is even stronger because the words for crafty and the word for cursed in Hebrew sound really similar. Something like arum and arur. They sound really similar. And so that wordplay is intentional that whereas the serpent was more crafty, now he is more cursed, and as a sign of that curse, as a sign of that judgment, he will go about on his belly and he will eat dust. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that uh, snakes literally eat dust. This isn't about some sort of low-carb, high-dirt diet or something like that. Snakes don't eat dust. They eat people and pets and those kinds of things. But the reference to eating dust is this common metaphor that we see actually throughout the Bible. Look at Psalm 72.9 which is a, a judgment psalm. It says, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Or Micah 7.17, They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. There's a number of other passages we could read with that same sort of idea. Have you ever told someone to eat your dust? Or maybe you're a bit slower and someone has told you to eat uh, their dust, whatever it might be. What are you saying when you use that expression? Well, you're saying, I'm going to defeat you uh, in this race. Not only am I going to defeat you, but I'm going to humiliate you. That's what this curse means for the serpent. It's a, it, it's a sign that you're going to be victimized. It's a sign that you're going to be humiliated. It's a sign that you're going to be subjugated. It's a sign that you are going to ultimately lose. It's this graphic metaphorical way uh, to depict judgment. Not only would he metaphorically eat dust, but also he would go about on his belly. Well, what does that mean? There are at least two different ways to understand this, two different ways that the church has understood this throughout history. The first way is to take it as an etiology, 
What is an etiology? That's a fancy word. It means it's the study of the cause of something. That's what an etiology is, E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. The study of the cause of something. So if you're taking this as an etiology, then you're concluding that this passage is going to tell us the cause, the reason why snakes don't have legs uh, today. That uh, this passage is telling us the cause of their present legless uh, condition. You've probably heard that before. You might have even used the text in that way. I've actually used the text in that way in the past. So in science class, you might have heard that some sort of vestigial structures that you see in a, uh, a, a, a snake's uh, anatomy somehow proves that the Bible is, uh, is true. Now, if you've been here a while, uh, you might know something about me, and that is that I have this irrational fear of lizards, uh, all right? And so Zach's afraid of flying. He's talked about that. Tim's afraid of ants, whether he means the, uh, the insect or uh, your mom's sister. I'll let you decide. But he's afraid of ants. I don't really know what uh, senseless thing Carl's afraid of, probably saxophones or Kenny G or something like that. Uh, but I am afraid of lizards. I've told the story before that my brother used to let lizards bite him on his earlobes, and, uh, and then they'll just hold on for dear life. And so he would wear them like earrings, and he would dangle them in front of me and shake his head like that. And that image, when I was, I don't know, four or something like that, has forever scarred me. So to this day, I have this irrational fear of lizards. So I, of all people, wish that this text was saying that this is the reason that snakes don't have legs. In other words, that the original serpent was actually a lizard, and this is my proof that lizards are evil. Unfortunately, I don't think that that is necessarily what the text is saying. Many, if not most scholars today, would take this not as an etiology, not as an explanation for why serpents don't have legs, but instead as another sort of metaphorical, graphic depiction of judgment and curse. It's saying that the enemy will be the lowest of all creatures. That he'll crawl on his belly as a sign of his judgment. You see, there, there, there tends to be this, some sort of a taxonomy or this order uh, to, uh, to creation. That you have mankind, and then you have the beasts of the field, and somewhere way down here, uh, you have crawling things like reptiles and serpents. Probably somewhere below that is cats. I don't know. The text doesn't actually say uh, but in saying that the serpent will go around on his belly, in other words, it's just this way of saying you will be the lowest of the low. You will be the lowest of all creatures. It's this, again, this metaphorical depiction of judgment and, uh, and humiliation. It's a prophetic metaphor for the curse. So it doesn't necessarily imply that snakes used to walk around uh, like that Geico gecko or something like that. But it's this reference to humiliation and judgment and, uh, and subjugation. So that's verse 14. We haven't even gotten to any of the good news, any of the Christmassy stuff. So let's look at uh, verse 15, and we begin to see some of that. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now this curse upon the serpent continues with this reference to enmity a word that means hostility, conflict between the serpent. And notice that the conflict is between the serpent and his original accomplice, that is, uh, the woman. Now, we certainly see enmity between humanity and serpents throughout history. In fact, uh, if you Google the most common fears, one of the most common fears that comes up is called ophidiophobia, which is the fear of li lizards. I'm sorry, the fear of snakes. That's a Freudian slip. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And so the fear of snakes, even, uh, you know, manly men like Indiana Jones are afraid of snakes. But this passage isn't ultimately about how snakes and humans can't coexist. That's not the point of the, uh, the passage because the, the, the verse itself is going to clue us in to this much larger conflict than simply that between humans and cobras or copperheads or whatever it might be. There is a much larger adversary that we'll get to. So let's note a few things that we can see as we study the text. Three things that I think we can see here that are helpful. First, notice that this conflict is, uh, is uh, going to extend for generations. You have this language of offspring, an ongoing enmity between offspring, between various generations, kind of like the, the Hatfields and the McCoys, or the Montagues and the Capulets, or the Browers and the Catlins, or something uh, like that. In other words, there's, there's going to be this perpetual struggle between these two different lines, between the offspring uh, of the, uh, the enemy the sons of the enemy and the sons of the kingdom. That's the first thing to notice, that there is this perpetual, ongoing uh, conflict that's going to extend for generations. The second thing to notice is that this enmity is between the offspring of the enemy and the offspring of the woman. What's really interesting about that and what I want us to take note of is that it's one of the few places Perhaps the only place, although that uh, is debatable, there is another text that could potentially say uh, a similar idea, but it's one of the few places, if not the only place, where Scripture talks about the seed of a woman. In the overwhelming majority of places, you would see it talk about the seed or the offspring or the the descendant of a man. It's really interesting that it talks about the offspring of a woman between your offspring and her offspring, that is the woman's offspring. So many theologians would see this as this sort of subtle, veiled reference to the virgin birth. Because Christ is the offspring of a woman. He's not the offspring of a man. Now, I don't know whether that's actually intended in Genesis 3 or not, but it's possible that this is a little Easter egg. This is a little Christmas present that's just kind of waiting to be opened with the eventual virgin birth. But that's the second thing to notice, that there is this enmity between the offspring of the enemy and the offspring of the woman. And then the last thing to notice is that even after mentioning plural offspring, there is this ultimate, eventual, singular seed Notice that the text doesn't say that the offspring plural of the woman shall bruise the many heads of the serpent's many offspring. Notice that the text says that he will bruise your head. It doesn't say that they will bruise their heads. This isn't about how a Christian coalition will defeat the serpent. It isn't about how humans and snakes will always be locked in perpetual battle. The text is ultimately about how one particular, singular, ultimate offspring will overcome the one ultimate, particular enemy. That this one particular, singular seed will crush the head of the serpent. And this is where we begin to get to the message of Christmas. We briefly mentioned it before, but theologians call this passage in particular, this text in particular, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel as in it we see the first faint hit hint in Scripture of the eventual defeat of the enemy of the kingdom. And this, uh, this faint glimmer of hope 
this faint hint of the gospel occurs through this double injury. Now, I'm going to steal an an image, uh, an analogy from Tim. I'm giving him credit because I think it's really great. If you don't like it, blame him. If you do like it, then commend me for telling it, remembering it so well. But here it goes. If anyone has ever watched uh, The Office, the American version, not the British uh, version, if you ever watched The Office, there's this scene where a guy named Michael, who's the boss, uh, where he burns his foot on a George Foreman grill. Uh, The reason is because he loves having bacon in the morning, but he doesn't have a butler, and so he uh, puts some strips of bacon on a George Foreman grill, puts that right next to his bed. But one morning, he wakes up, and he steps on it and clamps his foot down uh, on it. And so he calls in the office, and he says, I need someone to come and get me. And so Dwight uh, rushes out to save him, and as he's peeling out of the parking lot, he crashes into a telephone pole, and he ends up getting a concussion. So both of them eventually go to uh, the hospital, and Michael tries to f- stick his foot in the CAT scan machine, and, uh, and then Michael asks the doctor, which is worse, a head injury or a foot injury? Well, we know the answer to that question. The answer to that question is obvious. And so when we come to this text and we see this language of a bruised heel and a bruised head, we know that one is ultimately worse than, uh, than the other. What's really interesting is that this same word is used both of what the serpent does to the man's heel and what the man does to the serpent's head. If you're using the ESV, which is what we use uh, for preaching and teaching here at Parkway, then it's going to translate it both as bruise. If you use another translation, it might say crush or something like that. But the ESV translates both of them as bruise in order to show that it's the same underlying Hebrew word there, but bruise might not be the best translation for either of them. The word literally means to clamp or to grip with pressure or to, uh, to clamp down or to crush, kind of like a vice grip is sort of the idea. So if you're thinking about that, how does a serpent do this? How does a serpent bruise? How does a serpent grip? How does a serpent clamp down or crush? What does that look like? That looks like a serpent's fangs biting the heel of a man. But if we ask, how does a man do this? How does a man bruise? How does a man clamp down? It looks like the man using his foot or his staff to stomp down and to crush the head of the the serpent. And that's certainly what we see in the gospel, that Christ's hill was bitten. Isaiah 53, 5 reads, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So Christ's heel was bitten. He was wounded, but the serpent's head was crushed. You ever see pictures? We've talked, I've used this as an analogy before. Have you ever seen pictures of a python or a boa constrictor or something like that that tries to eat something that's much too large for them, and then it ends up bursting from the inside? That's kind of what happens in the death of the serpent. This seeming temporary, momentary victory over Jesus becomes the means of his ultimate defeat by Jesus. In biting the heel of Christ, his head is crushed. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, chances are you probably tend to think of the gospel first and foremost as this somewhat personalized, individualized, privatized uh, message. You think the gospel is about how you are saved. You think the gospel is about how you are loved, how you are forgiven, how you are justified. It's about you and Jesus. And there's certainly a sense in which that is, uh, is true. 
We've spent weeks upon weeks in Romans 3 and 4 and 5 dealing with the importance of salvation by grace alone, uh, through justification by faith alone, and yet the gospel is so much bigger than just you and Jesus. The gospel isn't first and foremost about you and your forgiveness and your justification, as important as that might be. The gospel is first and foremost about God, that God is crushing His enemies. And the reason that that is such good news is because God's enemies are our enemies. So not only is the gospel the good news that you've been set free from your captor, but also the good news that our captor has been defeated. Let me give you an illustration of why I think that is so important for us to grasp. Imagine, if you will, it's kind of a graphic depiction, but in order to really show the, uh, the horror of sin, the horror of our uh, in, uh, uh, enemy, uh, we have to kind of go with this graphic depiction. Imagine that you have been captured somehow, and you've been enslaved, you've been kept uh, hidden away in the, the basement of some sort of creep, and you're held captive for years upon years upon years, and you're beaten, and you're tortured, and abused, and every time you try to escape, you get caught, and you're tortured, and you're abused, and you're beaten more and more and more. And after years of this pattern, after years of being held captive, finally someone comes to rescue you. And as they come to set you free from your chains, they whisper to you, follow me, but be quiet. Your captor is upstairs. Now there's this moment where you experience this profound joy, but then all of a sudden the terror hits you. And you're too terrified to move because you've gone through this pattern over and over and over again. And so you fail to move. Now contrast that image. Same thing. You've been held captive for years and years and years. And someone comes to rescue you. And instead of whispering to you, be quiet. They scream out, you're free and your captor is dead. Now all of a sudden there's nothing to fear. There's no reason to not move. And so you cry out and you shout and you run out of that room with freedom and liberty and hope and anticipation because not only have you been delivered from your enemy, but your enemy has been destroyed. Your enemy has been defeated. Your enemy is dead. And that's what happens in the gospel. That's what happens in the death of Christ. That's why Christ came. That's the meaning of Christmas. Consider Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We preached this uh, text last Christmas Eve, actually. If you want to know why Christ came, why the Word became flesh, this is it. He came to die so that in his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We see the same thing in the book of 1 John. By the way, just as an aside, uh, after we finish the book of Romans, our plan is probably to walk through uh, the book of Jonah from the Old Testament and then to jump into John's epistles. So we'll do 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So that's a little preview of where we're going. And as we come to chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 John, we read this, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
So if you're asking, what is the reason for the season? If you're asking, why did Jesus become man? If you're asking for the reason for the incarnation, this is the answer. The reason that Christ became a man, the reason that Christ came, the reason for his advent, the reason for all of those things is he might destroy the work of the enemy, that he might crush the head of the serpent. And there's a sense in which this has already happened. We see the death of death in the death of Christ, and yet there is this other sense in which we're waiting for it. Romans 16.20 that we'll get to in a few months says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I want to end with this. Christmas is about waiting. That's what Christmas is about. It is about waiting. You experience that as a kid. You wake up in the morning. If you're like me, you rush out of your room. You go and you sit there by the tree and you have to wait until your older brother decides it's time for him to wake up. You have to wait for your younger sister to wake up. You have to wait for your parents to wake up. And then maybe they make you do something first. Maybe you have to eat first. The gifts are so close, you can almost reach out and touch them. You can almost unwrap them. They're there, right there. And yet, you can't quite tear into them quite yet. That's what Christmas is about. Israel is longing. Israel is anticipating. Israel is having this sense of anticipation and hope. She's ready to burst. She's pregnant with all of this angst and anticipation, waiting for the Messiah to come. And likewise, that is the church today. We are waiting in a sense. There's this anticipation. There's this angst. There's this expectation. We are pregnant with hope. As Israel was pregnant with hope for the first coming of Christ, so now we are pregnant with hope for the second coming of Christ when He will not come as a tiny baby in a manger, but as a conquering King who will finally, fully, and forever deliver His people and defeat His enemy. This is Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for uh, Your Word this morning. I thank You that You are a God who makes promises to His people And not merely do you make promises, but you're faithful to every single promise. And we've seen evidence of that in our text this morning as you promised that there would be an offspring who would come and crush the head of the enemy. And we've seen the hints of that in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And we wait for the day when we will see the fullness, the consummation of that with his soon return and our resurrection and the judgment of your enemy. So God, we love you. We're grateful for the gift that you've given us of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.